Uh, now, let me tell you that one of my favourite TV shows of all time, uh, and this is going to surprise you because it's not a superhero show, uh, but it's actually a show about home renovations. Uh, and it's this one, Fixer Upper. I don't know if you've come across it before. It's actually one of Brooklyn's favourite shows as well. Uh, believe it or not, I put it on one time to try and get her to sleep. I thought I could bore her to sleep. Uh, it turns out she really likes it. Uh, so it wasn't the right move. Um, if you haven't seen Fixer Upper before, uh, the premise is, is pretty simple. These are the hosts, Chip and Joe, uh, and they take some hopeful couple uh, and they help get them into their dream house. Uh, the tagline of the show uh, is that they find the worst house in the best neighbourhood uh, and they turn it into their client's dream home. Uh, and it's great. I love it. Uh, one of my favourite parts of the show is at the very beginning... Uh, They meet the couple uh, and they take them out to three different houses uh, and the couple have to choose which one of the houses will be the house that they fix up. Uh, And as they do, uh, they they usually have a bit of a pattern. So the three houses are are usually quite a bit different. Uh, So there's usually one in pretty good shape. It's kind of just a few cosmetic changes, you know, a bit of paint, new flooring, that kind of thing. Uh, Then there's one that's a bit worse, so it might need a whole new kitchen or bathroom or or that sort of thing. Uh, But then uh, they come to something like this, the kind of house where you think, how is that even still standing? Uh, The kind of house that that you'd think they'd knock down rather than fix up. Uh, And what you've got to learn as you see these three different houses uh, is you've got to see them, not how everyone else sees them, you've got to see them how Chip and Joe see them. You've got to see them for the potential that they have. Uh, And so in that regard, when it comes to which house you should pick, uh, you should pick the one that needs the most work because that's the one that has the most potential. So when Chip and Joe do their magic, with a house like this, they've effectively got a clean slate. They're they're almost starting from from the beginning. Uh, And so if you choose that house, you'll wind up with, with an incredible place. But the trouble is the couple don't always see it. They can't always see through Chip and Joe's eyes. All they see is the broken and run-down house. And so often they gravitate to the house that doesn't need much work. Uh, They just can't see the possibility of the house like that. Well, I think in today's passage, uh, we get these two sections, uh, and across them we get two different types of people. Uh, And in that, I think we have the same problem. Uh, See, we have the disciples seeing them, not through Jesus' eyes, but through the world's eyes, seeing them how everyone else sees them. See, in the first section, we've got the children. uh, In the second, the rich young man. Uh, And each of these two different types of people, we see, has has very different kinds of faith. Uh, As we see them, the disciples fall victim to that same sort of mistake as the couple in Fixer Upper. See, they look at the surface. Uh, They see what the world sees, and in doing so, they miss out on a bigger picture. They don't see things through Jesus' eyes. And and the difference is significant. Uh, As we read through, we see that one, uh, for one, the kingdom of heaven awaits. uh, The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And for the other, uh, we'll see they end up walking away, missing out on that incredible treasure. Uh, And so it's a big stakes. Um, Now, as we work through this passage... uh, we need to see these faiths through Jesus' eyes. And as we do that, it should provoke us to, to have a look at our own faith, to try and look at our own faith through Jesus' eyes. Uh, we tend, I think, to be pretty 
quick to assume that we're the right one, that if there's two options, oh, I must be the kids. Um, But the rich young man shows us uh, that it's all too easy to get things horribly wrong, Uh, to look at yourself uh, and miss something really important. Uh, And so today I want to encourage you to try and look through Jesus' eyes uh, to try and make sure uh, that your faith is the kind of faith that leads to eternal life. Uh, and to do that, we're going to see, uh, really pretty straightforward, we're going to see the children uh, in point one. Uh, we're going to look at the rich man after that, and then we'll see the impossible, what Jesus calls the impossible. And we'll see uh, how it is that he makes it possible. Um, so we'll start off there in number one with the children. We're going to look at verses 13 to 15. Um, so right the way through, I'll put it up on the screen, um, but also really good to have it in front of you so you can see what's going on around it. Um, so let's look at 13 to 15 to start. It says, Then the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Um, Now, in these couple of verses, uh, we find that people are seeing the kids all wrong, aren't they? Uh, And Jesus shows them why they're missing out. Firstly, because the kids have more value than they realise. Uh, And secondly, because these kids are the very image of what it means to belong to the kingdom of heaven. See, straight away, you notice the disciples just don't get it, do they? Their sense of value is all wrong. Uh, We're told as as people, and we presume that's their parents, bring these kids along, the disciples rebuke them. Uh, But Jesus won't have any of it. He sets them straight. Uh, When we read the same story in the book of Mark, it actually says that uh, Jesus was indignant with them. He's quite upset. Uh, It's clear here that Jesus is thoroughly unimpressed with the disciples. He's unimpressed with their attempts to block the kids coming to him. Uh, And so he says, let them come. Do not hinder them. Now, the disciples just don't think that the kids are important enough to warrant Jesus' time or his attention. Um, But we see here, don't we, Jesus making it absolutely clear that they're dead wrong. Uh, It's it's part of that back-to-front system that that he talks about, uh, that he shows us in verse 30, uh, where he says, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Uh, And that's true throughout Jesus' ministry, isn't it? We see him regularly engaging with people that, that most of the world just don't see as valuable. Uh, The world see the rich, the important and the powerful as the one worthy of someone like Jesus' time. Um, But time and time again, uh, that's not who we see Jesus with, is it? We see him alongside the poor, the blind, uh, the hated like tax collectors, uh, and here the seemingly insignificant like kids. When we see through Jesus' eyes, our false sense of who's important goes out the window. Uh, and we see it particularly with kids a number of times through the gospel. If you've ever been tempted to think of kids uh, as little beings who should be quiet in church, you need to think again. That's clear. Uh, now, that's not to say that we should let them roam free and do whatever they want. Uh, I, as a parent, have a responsibility uh, to look after my kid, to teach them to to behave, uh, to discipline them when needed. Um, But this passage shows us that it's really clear kids aren't an inconvenience to be tolerated. Uh, Rather, it's the opposite. Uh, The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Uh, Look at what we read in chapter 18. 
Uh, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Uh, And so we see that kids' ministry is vitally important. Uh, Here at at Lake Mac Church, our kids don't go off to kids' church to get rid of them. Uh, It's not about buying us some peaceful moments. Um, They go to kids' church because we value them enough uh, that we want to give them something tailored to them. Uh, We run kids' services here regularly uh, because we want everyone to be a part of that. Uh, We want everyone to value kids in the way that Jesus does. We We want to see kids as an important and integral part of our church family. I mentioned earlier tonight that we're in great need of leaders for our bounce program. Uh, Our bounce program exists to welcome kids in Jesus' name, just like we saw in Matthew 18. Uh, I know that not everyone has the capacity to be able to serve in that area, um, but if you can, think of what Jesus is teaching here. Think about jumping in. Uh, Jesus has a great heart for kids, and so should we. Kids' ministry is incredibly important. And statistically, it's something like 80% of people become Christians when they're under 18. Uh, Maybe this could be dangerous, but uh, who is that true for? Who became a a Christian as a child here? Yeah, it's important. That's me as well. Uh, Kids' ministry is vital. Uh, I want to encourage all of us to not slip into the trap that the, the disciples fell into. Uh, Don't be fooled into thinking that kids are somehow less valuable or less worthy of our time uh, or effort because of of some thinking like they're not as developed as us. If you don't cherish kids and their part in this community, you're actually missing out on something that Jesus wants you to have. Uh, So let me encourage you to work on that attitude and chase Jesus' heart as it comes to kids. Um, That's why for us... Kids will always be an important part of this community. Uh, We'll always welcome them. Uh, And all that comes with them as they come into the building. Uh, Not tolerating, rather cherishing, just as Jesus does. Uh, And I want to be clear, uh, as we talk about this passage, uh, that the value of the kids in this this passage isn't just the value of their potential. Uh, They're not just potentially important. Uh, The rundown house in Fixer Upper is valuable Because of what it will become when Chip and Joe work their magic. Um, But that's not what makes kids valuable. They're not valuable because they'll grow into something. Uh, Someone mentioned at our home group this week this great old saying, and it is a really good saying, uh, all the flowers of tomorrow are in the seeds of today. Uh, And there's an implication in that saying. Uh, We should nurture kids because they'll grow into something special. And it's true, isn't it? It's 100% true. Um, But it's good to acknowledge that it misses something. Uh, They're not just important because they're the flowers of tomorrow. Kids are much, much more than that. Uh, They're important today. They're important in and of themselves, regardless of what they may or may not become tomorrow. Uh, So important that Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Here we see that these kids describe the kind of faith that we, adults, you and I, should have. Uh, And again... Uh, It's very different to how the world sees things, isn't it? Uh, If I was to ask you, what kind of person uh, do you need to become to be great in God's kingdom? I think naturally we'd we'd list off uh, some attributes of of great and wise and inspiring men and women. But that's not where Jesus goes. I mean, he's got a whole raft of examples he could use from the Bible, doesn't he? 
But Jesus does something else. He points to kids. But what is it about them that makes them such great models of faith, I wonder? Uh, I think sometimes we, we just think it's because they tend to believe things easily. Uh, so while kids believe things easily, we should believe Jesus easily. Sometimes we think that's, uh, that's what it's talking about. Um, and it is true, kids are willing to believe. I've certainly told some kids some big whoppers through my time. Uh, I once, when I worked at Crusades, I convinced a whole year four camp that I was actually French. Uh, just by speaking in a terrible accent the whole time, I didn't even know any French. I just kind of went, oh, a lot. Uh, a whole year later, uh, those same kids came on their next camp. Uh, they jumped off the bus. I, wasn't, I didn't realise who they were. I said, oh, hello. And a whole bunch of them went, I knew it! <laughs> uh, kids find it all too easy to believe something, don't they? Uh, if you have a look at this picture, you probably know who it is. If you ask Brooke who that is, she'll say, Daddy! <laughs> kids do tend to believe things easily. Uh, And so it is tempting to assume that that's the characteristic that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, But I think this is much less about coming to faith and much more about what faith looks like once you've got it. Uh, And I think that that's the first part. So it's important to notice uh, that Jesus says kids such as these, these kids who've come to him already. Uh, This model of faith of kids starts as one that has come to him. Uh, so I think it's actually not talking about just any kids, but these kids who have come to him. Uh, I think the other side of it we see uh, when we see what Jesus says about kids in chapter 18. Uh, now, I'll put it up on the big screen. Uh, you can flip back a page in your Bibles if you'd rather, but chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, this great faith is about changing, becoming like a child, specifically taking on their lowly position. And I take it that the core here is to put yourself in the appropriate position next to Jesus. Lowering yourself means submitting to his rule and his direction. That thing that kids are really good at is being totally dependent. Without someone to guide them and look after them, kids really wouldn't survive very long, would they? We see that. Uh, Our faith should be like theirs. Totally dependent. Uh, We should have a faith that willingly follows Jesus, totally dependent on him. Now, it's interesting to note uh, that in chapter 18, uh, as we follow Jesus' instructions about kids, he starts off by calling them little children. Uh, And we see as he talks, uh, the way he describes them morphs into little ones, uh, which is a term he doesn't just use for kids. Uh, Little ones is also a phrase that he uses of his disciples. Uh, And so you can see that connection, can't you? A disciple of Jesus is someone who comes to him with a childlike dependence, trusting him all the way along. Uh, Maybe you don't like the sound of that. Maybe you like to think of yourself as not dependent but independent. Uh, You want to think of yourself as not needing help, rather capable in and of yourself. 
uh, sounds like a, a great attribute to have. That's really the opposite of faith, isn't it? But it, it's a trap I think most of us will slip into in one way or another. Uh, and it's certainly the problem that we see with the rich young man in the, in the second half of the passage. And so uh, we'll go to our second point. We'll examine him. Uh, we'll read from verses 16 to 22 uh, to have a bit of a look at him. It says, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. Love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect... Go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Um, Now let's start by noticing what kind of guy this is. He's rich. He's moral. Uh, The book of Luke tells us he was a ruler of some kind, so he had standing in the community. This is the guy that the disciples assumed should be able to approach Jesus. Uh, Notice there were no objections. No one tried to rebuke him for coming up to Jesus. Uh, If you've been around church for a while, there's a good chance that you've heard this story a number of times already. Uh, And so you've mentally already moved this guy into the bad guy category because we know how the story ends. Um, But it's good to remember that no one there present on this day, except for Jesus, uh, Expected him to go home sad. Uh, the people standing there, even the disciples, uh, most likely expected Jesus to give him a pat on the back, to say, well done, keep it up. In fact, the culture of the day would have assumed that because he was rich, he must have impressed God in some way, uh, that he'd been blessed because he deserved it. This is the guy that they expected Jesus to point at as the model citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, But instead it's implied that he misses out on the kingdom of heaven. How could that be? How could he be so seemingly close yet fall so short? Uh, And I think the clue for us is there in verse 16, right at the start of this section. It says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Can you see the problem? Eternal life, life in heaven, he assumes is something that he can achieve. In fact, he says uh, to get. He thinks it's something that he can not just achieve but gain. Notice Jesus uses different language. He says enter. See, I think that's the key difference when we compare these two types of faith, the rich man's and the child's. One is dependent on God and the other thinks he doesn't need him. And that's really what this section is about. Jesus slowly showing uh, that no one has got it covered. That no one is good enough. There's no amount of good that you can do to grasp heaven for yourself. Uh, He actually shows it right up front. The man asks, what good thing must he do? Uh, And Jesus begins by answering that the only one who is good is God. The writing is there on the wall right from the get-go, isn't it? There's nothing the man can do. Only a good God that he can turn to. 
But the man persists, uh, and so they go through some of the commandments. Uh, you'll notice it's, it's most of the second half of the Ten Commandments, plus love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, interestingly, I think Jesus chooses the ones that are reasonably observable. So all those commands, you can kind of see how he's doing. Uh, and though it seems uh, likely that he, he's done a better job of following those commandments than most, uh, the claim that he's kept all of those ones is certainly overreaching, isn't it? Uh, we, we know we're humans. We know he hasn't done it. It's telling that Jesus left out the 10th commandment. Do not cover. Uh, I think if he'd listed it pretty quickly, uh, he would have come undone. Uh, he wouldn't have done, done well. Uh, I think for this rich young man, uh, it would have been very evident that he didn't stack up on that measure. Uh, and you can see that the young man knows it, can't you? Uh, notice that he then asks, what do I still lack? He's well aware that he's not good enough for heaven. Uh, but he hopes to find a silver bullet, uh, some key task that can get in there, uh, that he can complete to make him worthy. Uh, and so Jesus gives him the hardest task that that young man could have imagined. He says, if you want to be perfect... Go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Um, now, I don't know if you noticed, but it's quite a wonderful thing that Jesus has said. Uh, it is an incredibly hard task. It's something probably most of us cringe at the idea of someone asking us to do that. But maybe you notice it's also laced with comfort. He says, give away your treasure... But then he also says it will be replaced by treasure in heaven. This was a a young, God-fearing man. He would have known that that heavenly treasure was a much better bargain. He says, sell your home, but come follow me. Uh, And that also means that he'll have a new home with Jesus. So he's lost his old home, but he's got a new one, a better home in Jesus. See, though it's a hard thing that Jesus asks him, The trade really is worth it and it's there in what Jesus says. But the man won't do it. He walks away sad because this is the one task that he just can't bring himself to do. And I think in that we see something really sad about this young man, don't we? That he's trapped uh, in this obsession of money that he has. Uh, This obsession that is so strong that he can look at Jesus' offer of greater treasure and turn it down. If he really thought he was getting a better deal by leaving the heavenly treasure and keeping his own, he wouldn't have gone away sad, would he? He would have gone away happy. So here is the danger. As we see this story, uh, we can be tempted to elevate the man's problem to think of his unwillingness to obey Jesus on on this one point, as a small blemish on an otherwise very godly life. We can, we can trivialise it. Um, but we need to see uh, what's going on for what it is. This isn't a small blemish. This is a critical flaw uh, that shows the whole thing will fail. This is the exhaust vent on the Death Star. One shot and the whole thing will explode. I had to go as Star Wars Day yesterday. If you don't know what it means, it's all right. Um, But I do want to make this point really clear. Uh, This guy wasn't really close to being saved and and just fell a little bit short. That's not who this guy was. 
Uh, He certainly looked very close on the surface. But that's the whole thing that Jesus is showing us here. It's not about how we look on the outside. It's the faith on the inside that counts. And this man doesn't have a real faith. He looks the part, but ultimately he's unwilling to put his trust in Jesus. And the place where that becomes really obvious is his money, his wealth. When it comes to his money, we see demonstrated his unwillingness to hand that part of his life over to Jesus, to trust him with it. See, the reality is that if his God is not the Lord of all, then he's not the Lord at all. Uh, Let me say that again. If God is not the Lord of all, then he's not the Lord at all. They're hard words, aren't they? But that's what we see here. As I've worked through, through trying to explain this section, I've actually written this part of the sermon twice. Uh, the first time I worked through this, uh, I made it very general, uh, saying that this thing, this chink in the armour, this thing that becomes a barrier uh, and makes us unwilling to put our trust fully in Jesus doesn't have to be money. And that's true. It can be all sorts of things, our time, our family. It could be anything Anything that stops us putting our trust fully in Jesus. Uh, And I did that. uh, I talked about it generally because I know that money can make people uncomfortable. And I thought, so well, let's just work out the principle uh, and then that will help us to apply it. But I think the trouble is that for most of us, money really will be that thing. It really will be the chink in the armour. And that's why Jesus focuses on it here. That's why he uses such strong language about the difficulty of the rich entering the kingdom of heaven. So this is my second crack at it. And I'm going to focus, like Jesus does, on money. And this will be our third point, And it's this, what's impossible? And we'll see it in verses 23 to 25. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus says for a rich man to be saved, it's harder than getting a camel through the eye of a needle. Now, if you're unsure, Jesus is deliberately giving us a ridiculous image uh, it's supposed to be funny. He's picked the biggest type of livestock in that, in that area in that day. Uh, and he's picked the smallest kind of hole that he could think of. Now, as I've heard it explained, there's been a disturbing number of people uh, who've tried to explain away this image to make it more feasible. I don't know if you've heard the same thing. Uh, I've heard people say that the eye of the needle was actually a, a particular gate in the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, that wasn't designed for big animals and so you'd have to unload it and then push it through and then reload it. Uh, I've also heard it explained that the Greek word for camel is really close to the word for rope or cable and so it's like trying to push a rope through the eye of a needle, so really hard but a bit more possible. Um, And I guess in in these explanations, they're trying to feel better about their efforts. Uh, They're trying to tell themselves it's really hard but it's doable. But it misses the whole point of the exchange, doesn't it? It's obvious in the passage. Uh, What can I do to get eternal life? What can I do to be saved? And the answer is nothing. 
It's impossible. We see that in the way the disciples respond, don't we? They say, who then can be saved? Their exasperated question shows they're clearly thinking uh, that by this standard, that no one can be saved. It's impossible. They look at the rich young ruler and they think, if he can't do it, then what hope do the rest of us have? And that's the reality that, that we need to understand. It is impossible for anyone, no matter how good you look on paper, to be saved on your own merit. And I think for the most part we know that. We've, we've taught well enough uh, to know that we can't do it on our own. I think we realise that we don't save ourselves, that we're saved by grace, we're saved by what Jesus has done. But I also think in this area of money that we're tempted to slip back into seeing things through the world's eyes. We know what the Bible tells us about money, uh, that we're to be generous, that our money, like all of our lives, uh, are to be used to build the kingdom. But I think uh, in this regard, it's easy to fool ourselves into thinking that if we look enough the part then it's okay to hold back our trust in Jesus in this area. Uh, Like I said, it's not necessarily true of money for all of us, um, but it will be for many of us. I think money is perhaps the hardest thing for us to really trust in Jesus and how we use it. That's why I think he teaches us uh, about its danger a number of times through the gospel. Because it really is a danger to our faith. It's the thing where we hold back our trust, where we stop listening to him. But there is hope. The hope is found in verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, the answer isn't to work really hard at giving your money away. That was... The rich man's problem, wasn't it? He was trying to do it on his own. The answer is to look to Jesus, to work hard at trusting him, to rest in his grace, to come to him with the faith of a child. One of the dangers of this passage is that we try and succeed where the rich ruler failed. Uh, There's been countless attempts of people throughout history to live this out, uh, who've taken what Jesus said to the rich man and said, well, he couldn't do it, but I can do it. But this instruction wasn't a general instruction. This wasn't something that Jesus said to everyone. It was a specific instruction to a specific person. And its goal was to highlight that despite his many good works, this man wasn't willing to place his trust in Jesus. I think really it was Jesus making specific what he tells us to do about sin in the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, So let me read it to you from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. They're strong words, aren't they? Jesus is showing him... That this thing that is causing him to sin, to cut it off, throw it away. 
That's a specific instruction for this man and his money, for his love of money, his sinful love of money. And so in one sense at that point, we can breathe a sigh of relief. There's no command in the Bible that all believers should sell all they have and give it away. Whew. It's good, isn't it? Uh, but I do need to say that if you're hearing that and it gives you comfort, then you're in the danger zone. Uh, I read this great quote as I prepared this sermon, uh, and it went like this, that Jesus did not command all his people to sell all their possession gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? If the idea that asking you to give up your wealth is something that makes you uncomfortable then you need to be honest with yourself that wealth is something that's dangerous for you. So what's the solution? What are we to do? Uh, Well, I actually think rather than trying to fix our behaviours, that's what the rich man couldn't do, and nor can we, uh, I think the answer is to work hard to grow in your trust in Jesus. Let that trust dictate the priorities of your life. If you genuinely do, it might lead you to something radical. You may well, in seeking to rid yourself of the love of money, decide to give it away. But that won't be the necessary application. It's just a possible application. See, whatever way you go, trusting in Jesus will radically shift your priorities. In Luke, we get this story, and I think in a lot of ways it's kind of a mirror to this one. Uh, It's kind of the opposite response than than this rich young ruler. Uh, And we get it from a man named Zacchaeus. Uh, We read about him in Luke 19. Maybe you've heard his story before. He's a short tax collector who comes to see Jesus. Uh, He's a guy who'd sold out. He was a tax collector. He considered the worst of the worst. Uh, A robber, a trader. Uh, And he did these things for money. No doubt, like the rich man, he was trapped by his obsession with it. It led him to do terrible things. Uh, So much worse than the rich young ruler. But look how he responds when he comes to Jesus. Uh, I'll read just the very end of the story. So I'm reading from Luke 19, verses 8 to 10. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This rich guy chose Jesus. Uh, And so his money became an expression of his faith in Jesus. Uh, Notice that he didn't give it all away. Uh, He was likely still relatively wealthy after all of this, Uh, just not as wealthy. See, for him, ultimately, money wasn't a barrier to following Jesus. We see him transformed. We see the impossible made possible in his life. Uh, And it's clear in the passage why he's saved. It wasn't because uh, he earned it by giving his wealth away. He didn't achieve it himself. It worked the other way around. He gave his wealth away because he'd been saved. The passage tells us he was saved because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
He was saved because of Jesus. The impossible made possible. For Zacchaeus, it wasn't really about cutting out the sin. Uh, He focused on Jesus and the rest fell into place. The more he trusted Jesus, the more his actions flowed from it. Uh, And so we're near the end. I want to wrap up. Um, We've seen this passage gives us two very different examples of faith. Uh, And they're the opposite of what we would expect. The child who is so easy to to push to the side, to marginalise, to think of as unimportant, is the example. A true faith, wholly dependent on Jesus. Then we have the rich ruler. A man who looked for all intents and purposes to be a great example of faith. But we see really falls short. Not willing to trust God with all his life and specifically not willing to trust with his money. The rich young ruler, well, he was forced to make a decision, wasn't he? He was put in a position where, where he had to show where his heart really lies. I think there's a danger for us in that we're never really forced to make this decision, are we? It's all too easy for us to, to just kind of get along with life and, and not handing this part of our life over to Jesus, leaving it unchecked. The obvious question is, what would you do if Jesus asked you to give money up, to sell all you have, give it to the poor and follow him? Maybe it's something else. What is it that you would be unwilling to hand over to Jesus? How would you ask, how would you respond if he asked you to give that thing up? The challenge here for us is obvious, isn't it? Uh, Where to make Jesus... Lord of all of our lives. Uh, If you think you're fine, let me give you a challenge. Try giving a bit extra away. See how it feels. Uh, Now, if you're worried I'm trying to wrangle some extra dollars for the church coffers, give it somewhere else. That's okay. But do make sure that there's nothing, nothing in your life that's getting in your way of trusting Jesus. Remember what Jesus says about sin. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's a brutal image, isn't it? But whether it's money, time, something else, don't let it be the chink in your armour. Don't let it be that critical flaw that will bring you down. Don't let it get in the way of trusting God. If necessary, cut it off, throw it away. Give it away, whatever you need to do. Do whatever you have to so that that thing doesn't cause you to stumble. So that you can live dependent on Jesus, fully trusting in him. And know that it's worth it. Jesus finishes the passage by telling us just that. He says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and inherit eternal life. Living for Jesus is every bit worth it. Handing everything over to him, every bit worth it. So let's work hard together at understanding that, at putting our trust in Jesus and letting the rest flow from there. Let's pray.
Lord, I want to thank you. Uh, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for these examples. Uh, Help us not to see uh, things through the world's eyes. Help us to see things as you do. Help us to be people who are like children, dependent on you, living in trust. Uh, Lord, we, we pray particularly where it comes to money, that thing that it's so easy for us to grip tight and not let go of. Lord, help us to live uh, with our money for your kingdom, uh, whatever that looks like. Uh, help us to express it in all that we do. And Lord, we pray uh, that you would help us. We know that it's impossible for us, but made possible with Jesus. And so help us to put our trust in him so that the rest can come. We pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen.